What can you give to a man who has everything? <laughs> what can you give to a man who has everything? Maybe a bag to put all that stuff in. But he probably already has that too. Maybe he's just not using it. He's probably got his servant to do it for him, right? Perhaps the most, the most dangerous condition we all face in our lives is pride. Before we look at our text in Daniel chapter 4, though, I just want to make it clear that pride is not exclusive to those who have everything. It is not exclusive to the rich, as it were. One of the interesting things about pride is that it's not explicitly in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not be proud. That's not, it's not one of them. It's not in there. But pride shows itself in many ways. Have you ever thought of envy or coveting as a form of pride, an expression of pride? Pride is often seen as a statement of, I deserve what I have. But is it not also a statement of, I deserve what I do not have? In chapters 4 and 5 of Daniel, we see two examples of pride. Today, in chapter 4, we'll see a pride that's coupled with redemption. Chapter 5 is not like that, though. So it's sort of a compare and contrast scenario, chapters 4 and 5. And there's a structure here to the first half of Daniel's book, especially chapters 2 through 7. Chapter 2 relates to chapter 7. Chapter 3 relates to chapter 6, which means what we have left is chapter 4 relating to chapter 5. So as you study these chapters on your own or the book of Daniel overall, notice that all these stories and events aren't just some random conglomeration of interesting tales. You could argue even further that chapters 2, 3, and 4 are just as much about Nebuchadnezzar as they are about Daniel and his friends. As we read chapter 4, it's as if the king has an 0-2 count at the plate. In chapter 2, Daniel interpreted the king's dream, but it didn't really change him. The king did not humble himself before Daniel's God. He was sensitized, but not changed. All he could say was, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. But you can see that he's not Nebuchadnezzar's God. The Lord is still only Daniel's God. And the only thing useful to me, the king says, is that he's a revealer of mysteries, the mysteries that I wanted revealed. The king witnessed it, but he didn't get it. Fastball, right down the middle. Right, caught him looking. Then chapter 3, which we looked at last week, the king builds a giant statue for himself and commands that everyone bow down to it and to him. Fail to bow down failed to bow down and be thrown into the fiery furnace. He says, what God can deliver you out of my hand? Clearly, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could save them out of the king's hand. That's what we saw last week, but that's where it stops for Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord is still not his Lord. He is the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not the God of Nebuchadnezzar. A curveball right down the middle of the plate. Caught him on his heels looking. Strike two. So with an 0-2 count, will the king change his approach at the plate? Will he shorten a swing? Will he lay off the high heat? Will he not chase the ball in the dirt? 
The problem we'll see is that the king thinks the count is 3-0. and He's in control. He's got that green light from the coach to swing away. What can you give to a man who thinks he has everything? The answer is grace. And if necessary, grace through humiliation. As we read chapter 4, I want us to see God's grace at work. God's grace is at work in his word, in his people, and in our humiliation. We're going to read all of chapter 4, which again in the book of Daniel is a long chapter. We've done this the last couple weeks, but I think this will give us some good perspective as we come back and talk about it. Daniel chapter 4, I'm going to read starting in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, king of the, chief of the magicians, excuse me, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. 
The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be let shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I... Nebuchadnezzar lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say to him, What have you done? At the same time my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Have you ever watched a movie or read a book, where almost the entire story is a flashback. You meet one of the characters as the story begins, but you come to quickly realize that the story you're about to encounter 
is not of what is to come, but of what already has happened. So the character you meet becomes the narrator, right? The voice that kind of moves you along in the story. She explains what happens, how it started, why and when things came about as they did. I think it's one of the coolest aspects of this story that we have here in Daniel chapter 4, especially from a literary standpoint. The one telling the story was not just an outside observer. He wasn't just some guy who came across this wild beast of a man in the field and researched how all of this came about. This is a first-hand account, a memory, an honest reflection on how he got to where he is now. The story begins actually where it ends. God's grace is at work in his word. Verse 1 in chapter 4 begins as a letter, a proclamation, it says, to all peoples, nations, and languages. Everyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. Look at what the Lord has done for me. In verse 2, it says, It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Psalm 145 is very similar to the king's letter here at this point. The phrases he uses to describe the Lord are almost the same phrases David uses in Psalm 145. And guess what other phrases we find in Psalm 145? I'm going to read verses 8 through 13 of Psalm 145. It says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The king says, Nebuchadnezzar, look at the grace of shown to me. Take notice of how the Lord has been gracious and merciful to me. Now, wait a second here. We've just read this story, so you know what happens. How in the world could you look back and describe what has transpired here as an act of grace? How can you say, look at what great things the Lord has done for me, when you can clearly see what he has done to you? Seven years. Seven years. A beast, as it were. So often in this world, we look to the positive stories to find hope. We look to those who have success in order to find God's grace at work. But let this story be one of many examples in Scripture where God's grace is seen in the struggle. That those who have been humiliated and walk away humbled have received God's grace just as much as those who have humbled themselves from the beginning. And if we're perceptive, we can recognize that none of us are able to humble ourselves apart from the work of God's grace in the first place. The story of the prodigal son is one of the most compelling stories in Scripture, especially the New Testament. The younger son goes to his father and says, Father, 
you are dead to me. Let's act like you don't even exist, except for the money that you've made in your life, and give me what I'm due. In that moment, do you ever ascribe to the Father grace? The Son demands what he does not rightfully deserve. The Father gives him grace, and that grace is represented in the inheritance. The Father lets him leave. Sometimes God lets us run ourselves into the ground, and sometimes God pushes us to the ground. Either way, we find ourselves eating with the animals, the pigs, the wild beasts. We are humiliated, ashamed, afraid. Everything and everyone has left. Well, almost everyone. Almost everything. There is still the grace of God available. Not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, but because that's who God is. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So the son comes to his senses. He humbles himself. God gives him the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the heart to understand. It's really hard to admit that God knows what we need and gives us the freedom to find it out ourselves. It's an even harder reality to admit that sometimes God pushes his thumb down on some of us and puts us in our place when we'd rather not. But in each situation, God shows his grace. He welcomes back the son with open arms and throws him a feast and celebrates. He restores back to the king his mind and his kingdom. God had already shown them grace in the first place. The king had conquered all the lands he wanted to. He built all the stuff that he set his heart to. He made one of the ancient wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? The king had desired all this power, coveted what he did not yet have until he got it. When we achieve what we have coveted, does it not then just roll over into pride? I think this is some of Jesus' warning in the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. I'll read this for you. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, speaking to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This parable is a story about covetousness. It's aimed at the brother who is coveting his brother's inheritance. 
Because what the coveting brother is thinking is in line with what the rich fool thinks. If I can just get enough to be secure and get to a point where I can say to myself, eat, drink, be merry. You have ample goods laid up for many years. If I can get to the point where my recognition of God and my dependence on God are unnecessary, then I will be satisfied. It's an uncovering of the veil of covetousness that says all you're really seeking after is pride. It's trying to demand your way to claim ownership over what is ultimately God's. Pride and coveting are both efforts in comparison. Ultimately, they are comparing what God has done versus what I have done, what is God's versus what is mine. But they also have a worldly dimension to them, a practical outlet. The Apostle Peter says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Often, we consider emotions and feelings and spiritual states of being we have as if they don't affect others or they aren't consequential. Peter says, have humility toward one another. Don't count yourself more worthy than another person. Serve them. Look after their needs. Put their needs ahead of your own. Both Peter and James say, humble yourself. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Because the fact of the matter is we will all be humbled. Whether it is through humiliation in this life or humiliation at the judgment in the next life, it will happen. We can choose to humble ourselves and forego the greater humiliation that's necessary to teach us God's sovereignty. Or we can accept being forced to our knees. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Those who have received God's grace, those who have come to recognize his mercy and love toward us in our humiliation, we already bow our knees. We already submit ourselves to his sovereignty, to his dominion, to his rule, to his authority. But there will be those who, even though they were given chances in this life to confess Christ as Lord and not themselves, they refuse. They see God's grace in the midst of suffering not as grace, but as punishment. They despise God's sovereignty. They despise that God allows sin. They despise the idea that a loving God could let them struggle in their finances or in their relationships. They despise the idea that sometimes God specifically acts in his grace in order to bring us to our knees in this life. They shake their fists and say, how dare you? God gives us a choice. But too often we are blinded by our own ambition, by our own demanded level of comfort and security. We are blinded by the lies of this world that say, if God really loved you, he wouldn't let your loved one suffer with that physical ailment. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let you be in the financial conundrum you're in. If God really loved you, he wouldn't let nations go to war and countless lives be lost. The way Nebuchadnezzar tells this story screams to the reader, God has shown me grace in my humiliation. It is an absolutely countercultural view of who God is. Many people see what God does in the story and they say, what sort of God would do this? So like the king, we start with the outcome. Look at the outcome. 
there is a proper recognition of the providence and sovereignty of God. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we too have a first-hand experience of God's grace, of God's deliverance, of God's salvation. The gospel we proclaim is not just a gospel in the pages of a book. It is the good news that has penetrated our hearts and brought us to our knees in worship and awe of the God who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. It is the proclamation of the spiritual reality that I was dead, but now I'm alive, that I was lost, but now I'm found, that I was a slave to sin, but now I've been freed to be a slave to righteousness, that God so loved the world and loved me that he sent his only begotten Son to cleanse me from my sins and give me eternal life. One of the pieces that can get lost in this story is that God does actually give the king a chance to repent and humble himself without having to endure these seven years of bestiality. It serves as a witness that God gives grace through his word and through his people. Look at verses 4 through 9 in our text. Says I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me. He who is named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Verse 19, skip down. It says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. And skip down to verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Do you notice Daniel's compassion? It's amazing to think that Daniel can show such grace and love toward the king while still remaining faithful to the Lord. Also think about the fiery temper of the king, all of the destruction he caused, the innocent people he's killed, the times in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 that the king didn't get the plain message that was right before him. Spiritual truths have been right in front of the king, and he has missed them. He has blinded himself to them. He has forgotten them. Yet Daniel shows more grace. He says, King, may this not be for you. May this be for your enemies. King, perhaps... If you turn from your wicked ways, humble yourself, repent. 
that there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. I don't think Daniel is just saying that to try and appease the king. I think we've already clearly seen that Daniel is not in Babylon seeking to appease anybody. Either are his friends. But he's truly trying to show grace toward the king. Who in our lives do we need to be showing grace? Maybe it's an ill-tempered boss like the king was. Maybe it's a wayward son or daughter or friend. God delights to use us to be stewards of his grace. As we have received grace, so we display grace. So what's a way that each of us can prepare to show grace in our lives this week? The best preparation is to remember our own humiliation, but maybe even more so Christ's humiliation. God gives grace through his word, through his people, and through his humiliation. Look at verses 28 through 30. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. He was given a year. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Notice, notice what the king is looking at. Where are his eyes fixed? I mean, it doesn't exactly say, but I mean, just consider. If the king is saying this, what is he probably looking at? He's probably looking out over the town, looking out over the city, looking at his own palace, which he's in the middle of. They're fixed on what's before him, on the horizontal the things he has accomplished, this world himself. And all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. But when he is restored, in verse 34, when he comes to his senses, when his sentence is complete, that seven years of living in the fields, having lost his mind, at the end of it, where is he focused then? Verse 34, at the end of the days, that means at the end of the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. His eyes are lifted to heaven. His thoughts and his words are directed to the Most High to praise and honor him who lives forever. He looks to God, the sovereign Lord of the universe. But you see, the story isn't just about the king's humiliation. It's also about Israel's humiliation. She's been defeated, conquered, killed, exiled. The king's story is really in the middle of Israel's story. The king's humiliation is a picture of Israel's. The king's lasted seven years. Jeremiah would prophesy that Israel's would last 70. Numbers mean something, especially in the Bible. Israel was proud, arrogant. Instead of acknowledging God, instead of worshiping and serving the Creator, she decided to worship and serve idols. 
to worship and serve creation. The restoration and redemption of this pagan king was a message to pagan Israel. God's judgment has fallen on you, but yet there is hope. You see, the story actually isn't just about the king's humiliation and Israel's humiliation. This story points to a greater humiliation, a a humiliation that was not deserved, a humiliation that was chosen instead of forced upon. Before the sermon, Andrew read from Philippians chapter 2, the prime example of humiliation. Jesus Christ was humiliated. His throne was in heaven. He did, in fact, rule over all. He looked out over all of creation and could say, this is mine. Look at what I have made. But he humbled himself. He became obedient because we weren't obedient. He was humiliated so that we wouldn't have to be. He died on the cross and took the punishment of our sins so that we wouldn't have to. He wasn't left humiliated, though. God raised him from the dead and gave him honor and glory and gave him the name that is above every other name. So that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has done that for you on your behalf? We come here every week celebrating the humiliation of Jesus Christ, not because we're some sadomasochist, but because his death means life for us. His resurrection means eternal life with the God who we rebelled against, yet still welcomes us back like the prodigal son. He has shown us grace through his word and through his people and through his own humiliation, all of which point us to salvation in Christ and peace and wholeness that we can experience in this life and forevermore. Just as Jesus humbled himself, now we humble ourselves by lifting our eyes to heaven looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, endured the shame. So we too now willingly and humbly look to him. If we want to know what it means to be humble, it begins by looking to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths exposed here in the story of this king and this really crazy, string of events. God, help us not to just be lost in the strangeness of what happened to this king, but help us to have our eyes fixed on King Jesus because his humiliation was greater than Nebuchadnezzar's. His glory and majesty are greater than all other kings. His rule and reign and sovereignty stretches 
everywhere. So I pray that you would help us to be willing to humble ourselves, to submit ourselves to that truth in our lives. Pray that for the rest of today. We pray that for this week. We pray that as we go about and seek to be faithful witnesses to your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.